0: Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's open our Bible, shall we, to John's Gospel, chapter 1. John, chapter 1. Let's pray together. Father... What we do here and what we just did tonight, we do every week that we gather. We sing, we open this book, we talk to you about it first, but Father, this is a special time of the year, and we do it because we believe you hear our prayers and you want to reveal yourself to your people. We believe you have done it through your word. That's why we open the book. That's why we study it and consider what the Spirit of God, who has preserved this account, would say to us. Speak a fresh word tonight to us. Help us to see clearly during this maze of the holiday season with various expressions just what it is we are doing and why. And kindle, Lord, within us a firm commitment to do what Jesus did in the passage we're about to read. As we are His followers, I pray we would do as He has done. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you were to sum up Christmas in one sentence or in one phrase, I wonder what that one sentence or one phrase would be. Take all of Christmas and sum it up. That was uh, asked, uh, actually, on an Internet site that I found. And uh, here's some initial responses. Here's the sentences that sum up Christmas. Craig wrote, Bad television, nice food, but too much of it, peanuts, aftershave, and cold weather. That was his summary statement of Christmas. Rob then chimed in on this internet site and wrote this, In one word, alcohol. And then a marathon hangover that lasts all year. A gal by the name of Darfuria wrote, I think I could do it in one word, negativity. So many people just whine on about, oh, it's Christmas again, and it really decreases from the value of the event. Well, these people have obviously lost touch with the real meaning of Christmas. It's either food or alcohol or a valued event. A valued event. And typically, that valued event for most people is either giving or receiving gifts. It has become about that. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. It has become that and been that for a lot of people for a long time. Uh, There were some statistics that were actually released a few years back of how much was used in one Christmas season. And during that year, Americans used 28,497,464 rolls and sheets of wrapping paper. 16,826,362 packages of tags and bows. 372,430,684 greeting cards. And a whopping 35,200,000 Christmas trees. A consumer event, a valued event. So again, the question, if you were to sum up Christmas in one sentence or in one phrase, what would it be? And I ask that question to us tonight because doesn't it make sense that if anybody should get that question right, it ought to be the Christian? I mean, it makes sense. If you think about what Christmas means and what Christian means, we should have the right answer. Christmas is simply an ancient term for Christ festival and Christian originally had the connotation of Christ follower. So doesn't it make sense that the ones who would celebrate the Christ festival the best way would be the Christ follower? Christians should celebrate Christmas in the right way. We've got to be the best celebrators of it. Well, this is what I was thinking of this week. And I was pouring over... Uh, Christmas sermons that I had collected that I had preached for many years and I've done a bunch of them I thought about all the Christmas songs and Christmas carols and Christmas plays that I had seen or been involved in Um, I decided even to google Christmas on the internet and I came up with 709 million hits obviously I didn't go through them all but as I googled that 709 million hits, they then wanted to direct me into several categories they had provided, uh, like Christmas games, or Christmas ornaments, or I could go to Christmas events, or Christmas stores, or Christmas greetings, or Christmas stories, or the origin of Christmas. Now, all of Christmas, for all of its celebration and Google hits can be summarized in one sentence, one phrase. And that is found in verse 14 of John's Gospel, chapter 1. It's the one verse we're going to camp on tonight. And the Word became flesh. Stop right there. That is Christmas in a nutshell. And the Word became flesh. Or, simply, the Word became flesh. Or, more simply, Word became flesh. You could narrow it down to three words that put Christmas in a nutshell. The Word became flesh. So if you're ever asked by anyone, what is the true meaning of Christmas, say to them this, this is what Christmas means. The Word became flesh. That's Christmas in a nutshell. This is the main event this is the big idea, that Jesus, the eternal Word, became a human being. Now, we know that. We, we do this every year. We tell this to our children. But we also have to realize, as much as we know the answer to that, it's still a great mystery. Paul wrote, 1 Timothy three sixteen. Without question, this is a great mystery of our faith, Christ was revealed in a human body. Tonight, what I simply am going to do with you in bringing this down to its irreducible minimum, Christmas, that is, is to emphasize those three words one at a time, and those will be our three points. Word became flesh. This is Christmas in a nutshell, and tonight what we want to do is crack open that nutshell. And we're not going to go broad. As you can see, we're only doing three words. But we do want to go deep and uncover this meaning. So let's consider the first word. And tonight what we're going to do with these three words is, since we're considering Christ, is his identity, his activity, and his humanity. And all of those three are here, tucked away in this nutshell, the word became flesh. First of all, his identity. He is called here by John, the word. The word. Isn't that interesting that a person, Christ, is given by John a very impersonal description, the Word. It sounds so impersonal to describe a person in this term. Why does he do that? Well, John is following a thought that he introduced, as most of you know, way back in verse 1. Let's go back to it. In the beginning was the Word... And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Let's go down to verse 14 again. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for He was before me and of His fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. So it's pretty obvious who we're talking about and what His identity is. The Word is Jesus Christ. And John seemed to like this description of Christ as the Word. This isn't the only time he uses it. When we get over to those little epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he makes the same descriptive analogy. In fact, in 1st John, chapter 1, verse 1, John writes, "...that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled, the Word..." Of life. I just pause there for a moment and think what it must have been like for John or Peter or any of those disciples as they were following Jesus when it finally dawned on them who they were dealing with. This is God. This is eternal God. This is the Word of life. Okay, question. What's up with the term the Word, the Word of life? Where does that come from and why is that important? Well, it was actually a very common first century concept among both Jews and non-Jews. Jewish people and Gentiles alike were familiar with the term, the Word. And so John brings two thoughts together in identifying Christ. Let me explain. In the Jewish targums, and Jewish targums are simply... um, Interpretive translations of the Old Testament written often in Aramaic, sometimes in Hebrew. And in the Jewish Targums, the term "memra" (memra), which means the word, was often used in the Jewish Targums. Typically, as a substitute for the name of God. Because remember, we told you a few weeks ago, the Jews so reverenced the name of God, they would never say it, they would substitute it with something. Here was one of the words they used to substitute it. The word, or the memrah. They didn't want to break the third commandment, and so they substituted the name of God for the term memrah. Now, to the Jew, it simply meant the self-expression of God to people the self-expression of God, just like an author would choose words to write in a book or on a scroll. So the word, the memra, is the self-expression of God to humanity. An example of that usage comes from a guy by the name of Philo who lived in Alexandria, Egypt, and he used the term 1,300 times in his writings to refer to the divine intelligence the divine intelligence. That's the Jewish terminology, memra. When you get to the Greeks, they use the term that is employed here in the original language, Greek. It's the term logos. In the beginning was the word, en en ha logos And the idea of the logos was to the Greek the explanation for the universe. See, The Greek philosophers would look around at the universe and they noticed this is a very ordered place we live in. There are orbits of planets and stars, it seems like. Everything's predictable. The Sun rises and sets, at least from the human viewpoint perspective. Seasons come and seasons go. We live in an ordered universe. So the philosopher asked his students, why? What is the purpose or reason that we live in such an ordered place? And the explanation of the philosopher was the logos, the word, which meant the ordering principle, or the reason behind it all. Greek philosopher by the name of Heraclitus, 500 B.C., said the universe can be explained by one unitary principle, and that is the logos. So now it's becoming clear. All of John's readers, whether they be Greek or Jew, this term would mean something to them. Logos, word. To the Greek, Jesus is the rational mind that ruled the universe. To the Hebrew, Jesus is the self-expression of God, the ultimate form of communication. I like that. He's the ultimate form of communication. When God wanted to communicate with the earth, the ultimate way He did it was through His self-expression, the Word, Christ. Think about that for just a few moments. There's a lot of different ways God could have, and I would say did, communicate to the human race. He used a variety of ways. For instance, God could have communicated by sending us a letter. We do that. And God did that, in effect. That's what this is. You have God's letter his graphe, his writings preserved by the Holy Spirit. He sent us a book, a letter. Also, God could have sent us field reps, representatives that would tell us about God. And God, in effect, did that when he sent prophet after prophet after prophet. Also, God could have communicated by an infomercial Something that would dramatically point to him. And he did that through the miracles of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. But the most effective and personal way to communicate is to be there yourself. And he did through Christ the Word. Now you know what that means. Hebrews 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. So let me sum it up. Rather than just communicating from outside of our world, into our world, God crawled into our world. He he moved into the neighborhood, we would say. He is the Word. He is God. That's the first. That's His identity. That's what the term, the Word, that John uses throughout chapter 1 and in 1 John means. Now let's consider the second. And that is His activity. The Word became. Notice that in verse 14. The Word became. Now this suggests that He wasn't always flesh. He became flesh. He became human. He wasn't always this way. To become something means you have existed prior to that state in some other state. And what was He? What was He always? God. God. That's the whole idea, verse 1 and verse 2. The Word was God. And in in the Greek language, without getting too uh, into the grammar, all I can say is the way it's written is to emphasize the fact and God was the Word. So nobody would have any mistake that this person we're dealing with was no less than the ultimate God. He became, he became. Verse 14, John 1.14, is the most concise statement of the incarnation, God becoming flesh, the Word becoming flesh, in all of Scripture. It is the climactic thought of the entire passage. John lays the groundwork with just introducing us to the Word. Oh, and by the way, He was with God. Oh, and by the way, He wasn't just with God, He was God. Oh, and by the way, in Him was life and the light of men. And the climactic thought comes in verse 14. When John concisely states God moves in to the neighborhood. The word became flesh. Okay, now we have the memra, the self-expression of God. Now we have the logos, the reason the universe existed, born into our world. And this is Christmas. This is basically what we celebrate at Christmas. This is what happened at Christmas. Because at Christmas, when Jesus was born, that's when this world was able to see what he became, to see the change on Christmas. I'm going to throw in a few other verses that help us here. 1 Timothy 3.16. We made reference to it a few moments ago. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested... Or revealed or shown or disclosed, God was manifested in the flesh. That's what he became. Galatians chapter 4 verse 4, and when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law. That's what the word became. Philippians chapter 2, that very famous passage that Nick made reference to a few moments ago, the great kenosis passage. Being in the form of God, that is Jesus, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, or he poured himself out, or he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Okay, now. I don't want you to misunderstand this. And I find that many people throughout the world do misunderstand this. When we say that he became, the word became flesh, it doesn't mean that he changed from what he was into something else. That's not what it means. But rather, Jesus became something in addition to what he already was. You follow me? I'll say it again in a different way. Jesus became fully human while staying fully divine. He didn't like, he wouldn't like God one minute and goes, okay, I'm going to be born now. I'm not God anymore. Now I'm a man. And later on, I'm going to be God again. Never happened. He changed by adding something to his nature and character while maintaining what he always was before and ever will be the eternal word of God. So, infinite God is now at Bethlehem, still infinite God in a package of bodily material, flesh, still God. Now, I'm going deep, and I'm being very precise, because the church throughout the ages, throughout history, has always done exactly that. There have been creeds that were sat down and penned by godly men throughout the ages because there were attacks against this very thing. Over time, two heresies or two weird idea systems developed. The earliest was called Gnosticism, and it was around when John was penning this very passage that we're reading. The Gnostics said Jesus wasn't a man. He looked like a man. He appeared to be a man. You'd look at him and think, that's a man. But he really wasn't a man because God is so pure that he would never defile himself by that kind of contact with humanity. So he looked like a man, but Jesus wasn't human. That's the first heresy of the church, Gnosticism. Later on, a few hundred years later, another one developed called Arianism by a guy named Arius who denied that Jesus was divine. So the first denied his humanity, the other denied his deity. So creeds were developed throughout history so that the church wouldn't slide over here and say Jesus was not a man or slide over here and say Jesus wasn't God but to say Jesus was both God and man. I'll give you an example. I'm going to quote One from an early creed, and second from a Christmas carol that you know. I was going to actually give you a few different creeds, but we just don't have enough time. I'm going to give you probably the most famous one, the Nicene Creed, written in 325 A.D., to counteract the whole Arius theology. Here's what the church leader said. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. See how precise they were? They had to be deep and precise, precisely because of the tendencies to pull to one of those two wrong views. the other is a Christmas carol. And what I love about the ancient Christmas carols and hymns is it was an era in which musicians actually knew theology and wrote with great depth. One of those Christmas carols was written by uh, Charles Wesley, set to music by his brother John. In 1739, you know the Christmas carol. Uh, You'll know it at least when I get to the end of it, this little section. Christ, listen to these words, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel, hark, The herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. So here was God. Not lacking deity, not Jesus as just a man lacking deity, but God. Veiled by his humanity. So fully God, fully man. And so whenever I hear somebody, I cringe when I hear, oh yeah, Jesus, he was a good man. You don't have a right. He was the God-man. Fully God. He could read thoughts as we saw last week. Fully human. We'll delve into that in, in this very next point. Here's the third one. Now just his identity, the word, God, eternal God, the reason for everything existing. Not just his becoming, which suggests that process of Bethlehem, but now his humanity. What did he become? The word, notice, became flesh. That's the result. That's the outcome of what he was becoming. Now we have God as a human person. Now we have the being who's larger than the universe and called it into being confined to the womb of a young woman. It is staggering. I hope it continually and always blows your mind. It was meant to. Now you have God as a zygote, and then an embryo, and then a fetus, and then born a child. And it's just more staggering the more you get into it. Philip Yancey, I thought, did a pretty good job when he said, imagine for a moment you, imagine for a moment becoming a baby again, giving up language and muscle coordination, and the ability to eat solid food, and control your bladder. God is a fetus. Or imagine yourself becoming a sea slug. That analogy is probably closer for us. On that day in Bethlehem, the maker of all that is took the form as a helpless, dependent newborn. Uh, This is what I've always thought whenever I've read that by Yancey or even this passage. I thought, okay, this is like the ultimate cross-cultural experience. I know a little bit about cross-cultural experience, not enough, but I've traveled around and when I go to places like India or Bangladesh, you step off the plane and you think, I'd like to get back on the plane now. It's just so totally different from everything, every sight, every smell, every feeling that I know as my home. Imagine being eternal God, all you know is the song and worship and adoration of the angels and the fellowship of the Father and the Spirit, now coming here as flesh. Which begs the question that must be answered every Christmas. Why? Why did God do this? Why did God have to become flesh? Of all things to become. Why flesh? Why, for example, don't we read something like, And the Word became An angel. Or, and the word became an apparition. didn't say that. It says the word, so that you wouldn't mistake it, became this, flesh, a human being. Two reasons why this must happen. Two reasons. Number one is redemption. Redemption. There came a time when the Father said to the Son, directed the Son, the only way that these sinful beings can find peace with me and have their sin forgiven is by a sacrifice and He sent the Son into the world to die. And that's the, the huge truth every Christmas we underscore, right? The purpose of the birth was the death. The reason for the manger was the cross. That was the whole purpose primarily for redemption. That's why. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. Jesus was made a little lower than the angels, that is humanity, people, for the suffering of death. Again in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Because God's children are human beings, made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could He die. And only by dying could He break the power of the devil, who had the power of of death, So now, now we have Jesus, eternal God, the Word, who became, not by divesting himself of deity, but adding to himself humanity, becoming flesh. So we have God as a man to redeem. So when Jesus died on a cross, he was the sinless sacrifice. He never sinned. He never sinned. He was perfect, flawless, never sinned. So by his death of an innocent victim that satisfied and appeased the wrath of God so that he could grant salvation to anyone who would simply go, I will trust Christ so that I can go to heaven. He opened the door for everyone. It was as if on the cross, with one hand, he grabbed the hand of the Father and the hand of humanity, and he stood in that gap and brought God and man together by his sacrifice. Number one, this had to happen for redemption. There's a second reason I'm going to give you representation. How would it be if you were a suffering individual? Maybe you suffered a a physical ailment or a depression, and you went to counsel with somebody who never in a day in their life experienced any pain, none of the same struggles you face. Uh, none of the same experiences, they lived all in a nice little ivory tower, and you're pouring out your heart, and they're going, oh yeah, yeah, it's really tough, Mm, yeah, yeah, I I, I can relate, and you know they can't. You're not really making a connection with that person. Jesus Christ became a man, suffering all of the trials, all of the temptations, all of the suffering people do, yet not choosing to sin at all, being completely perfect, So now when you pray to him, and you talk to him, and you say, I'm suffering, he can say, I know what that feels like. I know what you're going through. I have been there. He's the perfect representative. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 and 16, let me read it to you. This high priest, that is Jesus of ours, understands our weaknesses. For he faced all of the same testings that we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help when we need it the most. So this then is Christmas in a nutshell. Word became flesh. One of the Christmas cards I have kept for years is the one I got several years ago that had a picture on the front Of several different faces of leaders uh, despotic rulers of the past Um, Mao was on it Hitler was on it, Stalin was on it uh, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi was on it, King Tut was on it, Caesar was on it and you open it up and the inside it says this, history is crowded with men who would be gods but only one God who would be man word Became flesh. That's Christmas in its irreducible minimum. In a nutshell. We still haven't answered this question. How are we to celebrate Christmas? Since I've been told by many Christians you should celebrate it all year long. How do you do that? And since it must be true... If we are Christ followers and we celebrate this Christ festival, it just makes sense that Christ followers would celebrate the Christ festival better than anybody. How do we do that? We do it by doing what Jesus did, by being like Christ. When I say be like Christ, I don't mean you get sandals and a robe and a staff and say, whithersoever thou goest, verily, verily, I think you know what I mean, you what does it mean become like Christ? Well, here it is the word became flesh. Philippians two. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider a robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and came in the form of a servant, you know the rest. Let that mind be in you. Do what he did. Let me tell you exactly what I mean by that in closing. First of all, by the word. First of all, by the word. Now, you are not the Word, and I am not the Word, but you have the Word, and you know the Word, and we should preach the Word. And the message is Christ, and the message hasn't changed. And here's what's really cool about Christianity, even in our modern era. We don't have to come up with a new message. It's pretty simple, actually. I tell this all young preachers. We have one book. We have His Word. We have his truth. We have his person. We don't have to invent something new. And every time the modern church, so-called in whatever era, tries to be hip and slick like the world and repackage it and make it palatable to unbelievers as if they haven't figured out the world doesn't like what we preach, every time they do that, they lessen the gospel. They weaken the gospel. So we celebrate it first by the word, keeping the message Christ, preaching Christ. We should never be like, it's a true story. A department store several years ago, a chain, was selling for Christmas a little Jesus doll, complete with straw and a little satin manger, and it didn't sell. It was a flop. Nobody bought it for whatever reason. It was advertised as unbreakable, washable Jesus doll. Nobody bought it. In an act of desperation, one store manager hung up a sign outside the department store that read, Jesus Christ, marked down 50%. Get him while you can. Uh, as, As cute and as we understand the intention, funny as that might be, that's exactly what so many parts of the modern church are doing today. Let's take Jesus, but... Look it, we can't give people Jesus' full strength. We've got to mark Him down. We've got to dress Him up differently. So people will think He's cool enough so they can be Christians too. Number one is by the Word. Keep the Word the Word. The message about Christ central. Number two, by becoming. By becoming. The Word became flesh. This, this is the process. Jesus went through the process of becoming human. Think about the process. He was conceived. uh, He became an embryo and then a um, a fetus and then he was born and then he became a toddler then he became an adolescent then a teenager then an adult. He went through all of those same phases of growth that we do. The Bible even remarks on that in Luke chapter 2 verse 52 Jesus matured growing up in both body and spirit blessed by both God and people. And here's how I want to apply it. You and I as Christ followers must be in process. Never be static. Never be content with whatever level you have reached of spiritual maturity. Are you becoming? Are you growing? And I'll tell you how you can tell if you are growing in Christ. Is that year by year, Jesus Christ becomes bigger and bigger and bigger and greater and more grand and more majestic than ever before. If he's becoming smaller and smaller and less significant, you are not growing in Christ. You've heard of C.S. Lewis Chronicles of Narnia. There's a great scene in the book and then in the movie, but there was a book first, trust me. When little Lucy meets Aslan, the lion, who's a representative of Christ, and she says... Aslan says, welcome, child, he said. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. Well, that's because you are older, little one, answered Aslan. You mean, it's not because you are, asked Lucy. I am not, said Aslan. But every year that you grow, you will find me bigger. Every year you grow, you'll find me bigger. So number one, the word, preach the word, keep Christ central. Number two, grow, grow, mature. And you can mark that if you are growing by Christ becoming more exalted and bigger and better and more awesome than ever before. And number three, I'll close here by becoming flesh. Now, I want to, I want to clear that up. What I mean is we need to be in the process of making the truth incarnational. I know that's just a big word, incarnational. The Word, the self-expression of God, the reason for the universe moved into the neighborhood, became flesh. So when people saw Jesus, they could say, I'm looking at God. He who has seen me has seen the Father. So here's the deal with you and I too often here's our tendency to keep truth as propositional truth contemplative truth theological truth I submit to you you want to celebrate Christmas you be like Christ by making the word flesh let it be seen in you let the principle that is propositional be seen in you incarnationally. example here's a propositional truth Christians ought to love isn't that a great truth? Christians ought to love. We can preach that. We can argue that over coffee. We can discuss that in small groups. We can write books about that. That's just propositional truth. But when you give something to a homeless person this holiday season or you forgive somebody or you bridge a gap of uh, unforgiveness that hasn't been bridged or when you encourage a fellow worker or when you visit somebody who's a shut-in, now... The truth, the Word, has become flesh. It's incarnational. And if this is Christmas in a nutshell, and it is, the Word became flesh, then we know not only the answer. What sums up Christmas is not bad television, it's not too much food, it's not alcohol, it's not a valued event, it's the Word becoming flesh. And we who are Christ followers must be in that process of taking the eternal Word and letting it become flesh in our homes, in our schools, where we work. You see, incarnational truth isn't the truth of the seminary or of the classroom. It's the truth of the Monday through Friday. Uh, It's the truth of the street. It's the truth of the changing of the diapers. It's the truth of everyday life. When that is seen in us, and Christmas is really being celebrated. Our Heavenly Father, how we love this truth and we love this passage. And I love John's Gospel because it is so Christ-exalting and Christ-centered. And he seems just huge in this book. And at this time of the year, we consider not just a baby in a crib, but that this baby was the Word who has become flesh. And I pray, Lord, that not only would Christ be bigger to us, but that we ourselves would magnify Him, as Paul wrote, magnify Him by the way we live, how we interact, what we say, what we do after church, after the study group is dismissed, After the coffee is over, after the banter has ceased and we interact with each other and with the world, your truth would be lived incarnationally. In Jesus' name, amen.